It is Friday, December 11th. Welcome to Friday. On this episode, number 157, we're going to be talking about AutoZone, stock symbol AZO, and the DoorDash IPO, stock symbol DASH. Stay tuned. Let's get in to the Friday rundown. Final round. You lose. Here we go. Here we go. Here we go now. It's the Friday Rundown on Wisco Weekly. I'm your host, Dennis Wisco. You know who I am. Thanks for tuning into this episode. Let's talk about what's going on this past week here. There's really two things I want to bring your attention to. Oddly enough, there weren't a whole lot of things going on, at least what uh, what I saw, although I've been preoccupied this week. I will be traveling over the next month, and I will still be delivering these episodes to you, but uh, this week was kind of a, a hectic week in preparation for this travel. I will be traveling to the Czech Republic. That is where my wife's family is from. I'll be spending uh, New Year's and or Christmas and New Year's there, so that should be fun. I do that once every other year. The podcast is allowing me to take the show on the road. I'm going to try to, you know, do some more content from over there, taking photos, videos, and doing more of the podcast. So that, uh, stay tuned. There's going to be a lot of stuff coming to you. So for this particular week, let me kind of just share with you some of the things that I wrote down. And then I want to get into two particular topics or two particular companies specifically. First thing, uh, Uber. Uber is selling off their autonomous uh, driving business and they're selling it off to Aurora. So I, I saw that. I thought that was interesting. Uber really has way too many expenses anyway. They really do need to focus on their core business of ride hailing. I want to tease this out right now, and we'll get back to this. But also this past week was the DoorDash IPO. I'm going to go through that a little bit more in detail. I want to share with you some of the things that I found out with regards to DoorDash, and as I think, and as as well as a lot of people think, it's a bit overvalued at the moment. That bubble is going to pop sooner or later, although there is an asterisk on that. And again, give me just a second here. AutoZone had their earnings earlier this week on Tuesday, December 8th. And the stock, and first off, they crushed their earnings, okay? So for the quarter ended November 21st, the Memphis company earned $18.61 a share on revenue of $3.154 billion. Analysts were expecting earnings of $17.57 on revenue of $3.147 billion. So they did... A great job crushing their earnings. There's some interesting announcements that also came from AutoZone as a way for them to show their employees essentially how much they appreciate them. I thought this was actually quite a good gesture and good for them, good on the employees, good for that organization. I'm reading from the street here from Tony Awuso. The company also said it would take a $50 million second quarter charge to enhance employee benefits. What does that mean exactly? 
That means that all the employees will get a week off of emergency time off, and then they will also allow an additional or extended carryover of paid time off for the much of the rest of the calendar year. Now, it, the chief executive Bill Rhodes said that we shared with all of with all eligible auto zoners that we have again made some significant benefit changes to encourage personal responsibility. So that's, you know, good on them. Good on them that the CEO of Bill Rhodes is doing his part to take care of all the employees of AutoZone. What is interesting, though, you know, as much as that sounds great, AutoZone also did a share buyback. And doing a share buyback has some consequences with regards to artificially inflating the stock. So, you know, usually when companies have excess cash, they can do usually one of four things with it. One is you invest that money right back into the business, which that's technically what a lot of businesses businesses should be doing. Another reason why companies, you know, when they have excess cash, what do they, what do, they do with it? They look to uh, they look to acquire other businesses, right? Mergers and acquisitions, specifically acquisitions. They'll look to pay dividends directly to shareholders with excess cash. And then lastly, they can buy back, a company can buy back their own stock. AutoZone buying back their own stock, they're saying that they're going to reward shareholders as well as take care of their employees. But at the same time, when a company is buying back their their own stock, I mean, first off, let's see, they bought back 584,379 shares at an average share price of $1,161, which represented a total of $678 million. So AutoZone's a very healthy company. Let's be let's let's be real. AutoZone's a very, very healthy company. They bought back $678 million worth of their stock back to do what they will with it. And then again, you could say artificially keeping their share price at its current levels to give investor confidence to continue to stay with the stock. And AutoZone, I'm sure, has their long-term strategy of how they're going to continue to increase value for shareholders, continue to increase value for customers, continue to provide a good service with the company. Although, again, that buyback, eh, we'll see how that plays out, you know. Technically, it's uh, when, you, when you're buying back your own stock, it's uh, kind of like your mother telling you as a child that you're good looking when in reality, you fell off the ugly tree and hit every branch on the way down. So I think uh, we just got to be wary of what's going to happen with AutoZone in the coming days. And not in the coming days, in the coming, uh, in the coming years. All right, let's get to DoorDash here. DoorDash went public on Wednesday, and they, they, I mean, they crushed their IPO. Their IPO was initially offered at, uh, let's see, where are my notes here for DoorDash? So reading from investors.com from Brian Degon, the largest provider of food delivery services, 
on Tuesday priced 33 million shares at $102, well above the estimated price range of $90 to $95. The DoorDash IPO values the company at a fully diluted market value of $38.2 billion. That's 28, uh, 28% above original expectations. So DoorDash IPO'd at $102. When they started trading publicly, they opened up, I mean, ridiculously, at $182. They got as low in the day as $163.80 and then closed the day at $189.51. They closed at $189.51. Their IPO was set at $102. So they made a nice pretty penny on opening day. Now, all the skeptics are out. All the skeptics are out on DoorDash saying that their valuation is just so, so inflated. Right now, their market cap is $60 billion, give or take some. Obviously, that changes. $60 billion DoorDash is. Now, I got to tell you, I don't see it. DoorDash, it has a little bit of a notorious reputation with restaurants that they just rape restaurants. Now, this is kind of the price of doing business with DoorDash, and now they're starting to corner that market, or maybe they've already cornered that market. But certainly, restaurants will look to game the system to ensure that they can take back some of those profits that they're giving DoorDash. There's a couple different percentages that I've seen out there. I don't know which one's official, but anywhere from about 20% to 30% is what DoorDash takes in their commission when an order is placed. On top of your service fee for using the app, that's usually the user service fee. And then you also have a delivery fee. And then you can even add a tip on top of that. So by the time you get your meal, you could easily be paying $20, $25 more for one person in upcharges through DoorDash. The restaurant who made the food, who sourced all the ingredients, they're not going to get paid as much because they have to cut their commission to DoorDash. And restaurants will find a way to game the system so that they can take, they can cut into that 20%. So it's not 20 to DoorDash. Maybe it's 15, maybe it's 10. It should be important to note that the restaurants, if you haven't noticed this during the lockdowns and the pandemic, restaurants sometimes carry a different menu on DoorDash's app than the menu that is provided on their website, for instance. And the menu that's on DoorDash, the food items might be a couple dollars more than if you were actually go to the website of the restaurant and order directly from the, from the restaurant. Now, I think these are some of the the push and pull of trying to do this dance of what's the best combination of profiting, how restaurants are trying to profit versus using the services of DoorDash. It's going to be a fairly losing proposition to raise food prices unless, of course, those, those food items are only available through DoorDash, which there could be a premium on that. 
but I just don't see see it happening where restaurants will be able to increase their prices by so much and that consumers in the long run will pay those increased prices knowing that either they can just go to the restaurant and pick up the food themselves without without the food being, you know, delivered from DoorDash. I don't see how that model is sustainable over the long haul without restaurants having to fight and claw their way to take back what is theirs. And that is the food itself. Don't get me wrong. DoorDash, especially its executive leadership, which I'll get to in a second here, seemed to be brilliant. It would be interesting, a, a very interesting play on DoorDash would be if somehow they are able to get into the food supply game. Think of Amazon delivery trucks, except it's DoorDash delivery trucks that are sourcing all the food from the farmers directly to restaurants. That could be interesting. After all, DoorDash does like to support the 1099 independent contractor model. So as much as all the skeptics are out saying that DoorDash is way overvalued, in taking a look at their founders, and their founders are Anthony Fang, Tony Shu, Stanley Tang, and Evan Moore. Andy Fang, Tony Shu, Stanley Tang, and Evan Moore. I must say, and I'm going to go through their LinkedIn profile and I'm going to read some tweets for you. As an executive team, they are quite impressive. Andy Fang and Stanley Tang, the Fang Tang brothers, they're not really brothers at all, but obviously they're Asian and Asians look alike. I can say that because I am one. Relax, people. Andy Fang and Stanley Tang, both computer science majors at Stanford University, classmates. They somehow paired together with Tony Hsu and Evan Moore. Tony Hsu was also a Stanford graduate, although in their business department, in their uh, business school, he attended Berkeley as an undergrad, studied industrial engineering and operations research, and then, and that was from 2003 to 2007. And then he, he graduated with high honors from Berkeley. He researched mathematical biology. Interesting. And then he attended Stanford Graduate School of Business from 2011 to 2013. Tony Hsu and Evan Moore are the other side of the equation where they met at Stanford Business School. Evan Moore attended NYU from 2003 to 2007 and received a Bachelor in Fine Arts in Music and Audio Engineering. Evan Moore is kind of the, you can maybe say, the creative genius. So he attended Stanford University from 2011 to 2013, met up with Tony Hsu. Tony Hsu is definitely the, well, he is the CEO, but he he very much acts like your big-time CEO, wanting to demonstrate a lot of inclusivity that, hey, world, we're here for you, and we only want what's best for you. That comes across like somewhat condescending. It's not meant to. <laughs> Forgive me. But Tony Hsu, again, he he is very much the 
gatherer of the group wanting to make sure that everyone is taken care of. On June 3rd, 2020, he sent a very lengthy tweet in which I will read here for you. To all those hurting, especially those in the black community, know that we at DoorDash stand with you and support your right to be seen and heard. Solving some of our systemic challenges will require a long, sustained effort. Here are some steps we are taking today. Again, this is June 3rd. We will use our DoorDash and Caviar platforms to highlight and support Black-owned businesses and Black entrepreneurs. We are donating $1 million with $500,000 going to Black Lives Matter and $500,000 to create a fund to be directed by our Black at DoorDash employee resource group. We are creating formal structures to ensure we are hearing from our community, starting with the Dashers of Color Council. This group will be formed in the coming weeks and will advise our company on issues facing Black Dashers, including safety and access. So you're already, you, you know the tones right, right here. Social justice, equity is what he's making a pitch for. We are reaffirming our commitment to combat racism and discrimination within our company, on our platform, and in our communities. We will also use our voice to support policies that are proven to reduce police violence. We will be collaborating with experts to identify ways to combat bias on our platform and to design strategies to change the written and unwritten rules in our industry that affect black communities the most and have the greatest potential to advance justice and inclusion. Last tweet in this series, we will continue to hold ourselves accountable to increasing diversity in our teams, inclusive of underrepresented people of color, by tying progress to job performance and promotions, and by rejecting hire requests that have not interviewed a diverse slate of candidates. So, all good stuff in theory. Obviously, there's going to come a time where one of the businesses that DoorDash is pillaging from 20, 30% of their commission is going to be a black owned business. What then is the call to action when that happens? Again, I'm sure Tony will be able to figure it out. I pose that partially hypothetically, but partially that very well could happen. But Tony shoes, definitely the CEO making one, ensuring that the company looks good. Evan Moore, the creative genius of the group, he tweeted on December 9th, on 5-29-2013, my birthday, exclamation point, I filed to incorporate Palo Alto Delivery Inc., later renamed DoorDash Inc. It's mostly not my story to tell, but I'll share a bit today about how it started. My goal is to give aspiring entrepreneurs a window into one founding story. This is a bit of a long one, but I'm going to go through it. You'll hear people say the team was obviously impressive or they had conviction in the vision, but we were not special. It was not a hot space and no one thought it made sense at first. Starting from the belief that we had to earn every inch, as Tony often said, was integral. Tony and I had discussed ideas for a while without much progress. During our second year in business school, we wanted to build something. I met Stanley in a class and asked if he wanted to work together. He brought in Andy, and the four of us met up. 
We came together with an idea, but a shared desire to build something we'd be proud of and a common interest in common interest in serving small businesses. We went door to door and asked business owners to tell us about their work. The most useful question for me was, tell me everything you've done since getting here today. So Evan was asking business owners door-to-door, tell me everything you've done since getting here today. That'd be a good thought exercise. I continue. We tried a few things. One of them was a short marketing attribution survey placed on iPads at retail point of sale. We realized that a surprising percentage of people would answer one question while waiting for their card to process. It was nice to have, not obviously compelling. Delivery first came up at a macaroon shop. We were wrapping up an interview when we overheard the manager turn down a delivery order. If there was a light bulb moment, this was it. Why couldn't businesses send things across town on demand? There should be an on-demand FedEx. Then we found that restaurants had a more acute pain point. Most didn't deliver, and the few that did hated doing it. It made no sense for a restaurant to have its own delivery people when they could have five orders one day, 20 the next, a pulled resource would obviously be better. So we thought we could build delivery as a service. Businesses who, f- who feed us their orders, we deliver them. We, with our pulled service, all the restaurants in the burbs could now deliver, in the suburbs could now deliver. But immediately we saw it'd be hard to get restaurants to change their behavior. The most important hypothesis for this work was that excess consumer demand existed. We'd also have to prove out the labor economics for delivery and that restaurants would be open to delivery. But consumer demand was clearly the driver that would convince restaurants. So we tested just the consumer part first. We made a static HTML page at paloaltodelivery.com with a Google voice number and a few PDF menus from local restaurants, offering delivery for $6. We launched a small AdWords campaign to see if anyone was searching for it. Hours later, Tony and I were driving home when we got the first order. I grabbed a notebook and wrote down what the guy wanted from a local Thai restaurant. We placed a takeout order, drove to the restaurant, bought the food, took it to the customer and charged him with square. You know, so I love, I love these kinds of stories because he's right. These are the early days of hacking your way to getting to a business, getting to an operation. I mean, literally this was, this is, this is kind of a broker model. Right, because the restaurant doesn't know the final delivery point. The restaurant only knew that Evan Moore was calling in an order, and Evan Moore was going to be paying for that order. The restaurant had no idea where that order was going to go. I I continue on. We kept the experiment going. We sent the link to some Stanford students. We were open a few hours per day around dinner, and we took turns answering the phone and driving to deliver. We used Find My Friends to see each other's locations and dispatch orders via text. We quickly had trouble keeping up. I remember running out of class to answer the phone more than a few times. We started hiring others to help us deliver from Craigslist flyers and by ordering pizza and hiring that driver on the spot. I'd start my day by taking out cash from the bank. I'd go to multiple Safeways and buy the max allowed number of green dot cash cards, give them to drivers to pay for food. Then I'd dispatch and drive collecting the cards at the end of the day and pay drivers in cash. We probably took up do things that don't scale too far. It was absurd, but there was a major upside to doing so many orders ourselves. We understand the details. The best alley parking lot spot for each restaurant, which expediter at Oren's Hummus forgets the hot sauce, how to deliver to large apartment complexes, 
what happens when you lose cell signal in Los Altos, how a hangry parent looks at you when her order is late, every detail. We knew the unit economics weren't terrible because we somehow, as we were doing this, the bank account wasn't going down. We knew that the unit economics weren't terrible because somehow, as we were doing this, the bank account wasn't going down. I see. It was still running out of my personal account. What an irony that while at Stanford Business School, we didn't know the first thing about starting a business. Soon the conversation with restaurants totally changed. I see you are here all the time. Why are you buying so much food? How can we work together? Our first restaurant partner showed us how they receive orders from Grubhub via fax and asked us to do the same. I was excited to have a programmatic way to send orders and then noticed one more thing. Grubhub took a huge commission. Grubhub didn't even do the deliveries. They just forwarded orders. So if we were doing them, surely we could generate a similar commission. That restaurant delivery was such a large opportunity. That restaurant delivery was such a large opportunity. It was counterintuitive even to us. There were many crummy local services around, but at this point, the latent demand for restaurant delivery was slapping us in the face. A few months in, we explicitly decided to reset our lives, move in together, and devote 24-7 to building DoorDash. After Y Combinator, we made the same commitment again. A business like this doesn't get built without sacrifice. I can only imagine what it's been like to do this for six years. Our friends were like, oh, interesting, in a way that we knew actually meant, this is weird why you are delivering food, but it's fun to have discovered a secret we had, more, we had more than enough evidence to endure being misunderstood for a while. There was another startup that launched the same week in the same town with the same model. They spread lies about us to restaurants and tried to poach our drivers. They met our eventual seed investors before we did. Who is that? I wonder who that is. I don't know who that is. We ignored them. We stayed focused on delighting customers, merchants, and drivers. That company is, that company is long dead. Interesting. We were maniacal about growth, 10% weekly. We wrote down on a whiteboard the number of orders we needed per day to hit that target and the results at the end of the day. We made a simple order counter that we could obsessively check from our phones while we were out driving. One of our most memorable lessons from Y Combinator was do all the things. We came with a list of 20 ideas for how to grow and asked the Y Combinator partners which to prioritize. I think it was at Paul too, who said something like, how would I know? Do all the things. There was no shortcut. We had to do everything fast and well and double down on that work. Later, I'll write down how this, how this became a simple growth framework I've used since. We did everything to grow from standing on the street, t- talking up strangers, going to a birthing convention to figure out how to reach new parents competing on who could hang more door hanger flyers in a day. Most of it didn't work, but some did. We worked at a few houses and at some point had about 15 people working from a two-bedroom apartment. We liked the cozy vibe, especially since we were all there. We were all we were there all of our waking hours and some of us slept there. So that was Evan Moore's personal note on how DoorDash got started from meeting Tony, bringing in Andy and Stanley, and starting to build out the business, do their own grind work, collect the money, and just start to develop the relationships, know every single detail, ask the right questions, and like they 
were advised at the Y Combinator, do all the things. And eventually they got to this point of being a $60 billion company. So while the stock is definitely overvalued in a lot of ways, they do seem to have a four-headed beast that will not quit. So this could be interesting to see how their share price plays out, how the stock plays out. I will be closely following it. So, okay, that was a long one. Only discussing two of those particular stocks. Anyhow, thanks for tuning in to this episode of Wisco Weekly. Have a great weekend. I will see you next week, and I will be coming to you live from the Czech Republic. See you, my friends. And now a word from Fembot Fiona. Wisco Weekly is providing this information for educational purposes only. We are not providing legal, accounting, or financial advisory services, and this is not a solicitation or recommendation to buy or sell any stocks, options, or other financial instruments or investments. Examples that address specific assets, stocks, options or other financial instrument transactions are for illustrative purposes only and may not represent specific trades or transactions that we have conducted. In fact, we may use examples that are different or the opposite of transactions we have conducted or positions we hold. This site and any information or training therein is also not intended as a solicitation for any future relationship, business or otherwise between the members or participants and the moderators. No express or implied warranties are being made with respect to these services and products. All investing and trading in the securities market involves risk. Any decisions to place trades in the financial markets, including trading in stock or options or other financial instruments, is a personal decision that should only be made after thorough research, including a personal risk and financial assessment, and the engagement of professional assistance to the extent you believe necessary.